This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. Did you recognize that bird call? We'll be talking about that particular species of bird in just a moment when we return to Bird Hugger. What happens when a burnt out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there. I hope you're all enjoying the beauty of summer. We've been getting out on the lake with our kayaks, paddling in between the raindrops, so to speak. And it is just breathtaking out there. I love watching the kingfishers sitting on an overhead branch, watching for fish in the water below. And I also love watching the great blue herons standing in shallow water, waiting to pounce on their dinner. It truly is like watching a present-day dinosaur in action. As I alluded to earlier, we have had an abundance of rain, and everything in my yard is growing gangbusters right now. I have finished planting for the summer, but I am still busy dividing my seedlings from the seeds I grew outdoors over the winter. These I will plant in the ground in the fall and they include Virginia Mountain Mint, which loves sun, and Spotted Bee Balm, Blue Wood Aster, White Aster, and Blue Lobelia, all of which prefer sun to part shade. Anyway, I think we've got a great show for you today. Today we'll be speaking with forester Dave Gavotsky about how to identify old-growth forests and how to preserve them. A new study is showing that a bird's sense of smell plays a much larger role in foraging for food than avian scientists have previously believed. For the study, researchers from the Max Planck Institute tracked the feeding habits of the white stork. Multiple observations were made of the bird's tendency to flock to areas after recent grass mowing by farmers. These newly mowed areas were found to offer a banquet of snails, frogs, and small rodents, all favorite foods of the white stork. The study showed the smell of freshly mowed grass was a signal to the birds that food was in the offing, according to lead scientist Martin Wileski. Only storks that were downwind and could smell the freshly mown grass showed up to forage. The scientist even sprayed a meadow with the smell of freshly mown grass and found the storks arrived right away, looking for dinner. While it had long been believed that birds rely primarily on sight and hearing for finding food, the study concluded that sense of smell plays a much larger role for birds than previously thought. The scientist also reported that birds have a very large olfactory bulb in the brain with many receptor molecules for scent and that research is only just beginning to reveal what a vital role scent plays in the life of a bird. The field of wildlife forensics has just taken a big leap forward with the discovery of a new method that helps investigators identify smuggled animals that would otherwise escape detection. 
For years, poachers have tried to confuse officials by mixing illegally caught rare and endangered birds with birds destined for the pet trade, smuggling them out of the country for big profits. However, researchers from the Conservation Forensics Laboratory at the University of Hong Kong recently developed a test that will help investigators determine whether an animal is captive bred or wild caught, a tool that may put an end to bird laundering schemes. Scientists use stable isotopes, which are non-radioactive elements, to examine the feathers of the yellow-crested cockatoo, a critically endangered bird from Indonesia. Analysis of the cockatoo feathers revealed vast differences in the composition of the feather shafts between pet trade birds and those caught in the wild illegally. The diets of pet-reared birds differ greatly from the natural diet eaten by wild birds, and this difference in nutrition shows up clearly during testing, giving investigators another weapon in the war against animal poachers. Did you recognize that bird call at the beginning of the show? That's the call of the red-winged blackbird. Measuring nine inches in length, the male red-winged blackbird is a showy and flashy bird with a solid, glossy black body and shoulder patches of bright red and yellow feathers. The females are light to dark brown with white streaks and are often mistaken for sparrows. A good thing because when nesting, they blend in seamlessly with surrounding branches and vegetation, staying well hidden. While some people may consider seeing a robin a sign of impending spring, the call of the red-winged blackbird in the late winter is the true harbinger of springtime. Exceedingly fond of wetland habitat, this omnivore will frequent both fresh and saltwater marshes to search for some of its favorite food, which includes snails, mussels, crayfish, and frogs. They will also inhabit farmlands and deciduous forests in lower elevations, where insects, seeds, and grains are plentiful. In this habitat, they also enjoy eating spiders, worms, fruits, and berries. In late winter and early spring, the males migrate north post-haste in order to grab the best wetland areas and usually have secured a choice spot before the females arrive. When breeding season arrives, the male trumpets out his merry song, an intriguing blend of cacophonous and mellifluous notes, letting females know he is in the neighborhood. The male also ruffles his feathers in order to show off his brightly colored shoulder patches to their best advantage when seeking to gain the attention of a female. This display also puts other males on notice that they need to vacate the area immediately. The red-winged blackbird is referred to by ornithologists as highly polygynous. One male may mate with over a dozen females in a single breeding season. The males are extremely territorial of their nesting and roosting areas and will fight fiercely to defend their mates and nests of young. Males spend fully 25% of their day patrolling the borders of their territories, looking for interlopers. Red wings will also let humans know when they stray too close to their breeding grounds. It is always best to yield to a red-winged blackbird male in such circumstances. Either that or wear a suit of armor. A mated pair will construct a nest woven of marsh vegetation and wet leaves in between cattails or sedgebrush, and will then fill the cup-shaped framework with dried mud and line it with soft grasses. The female lays three to four eggs that are a pale blue and green, decorated with dark streaks. 
Once the eggs hatch, the female feeds the nestlings, which fledge in 10 to 14 days and are completely independent of the parents within 14 to 21 days. Red-winged blackbirds enjoy a wide range, which extends from southern Alaska to the Yucatan Peninsula and northern Caribbean islands, and will migrate up to 800 miles when the weather changes. Some red-winged blackbirds in the southern reaches of their range are year-round residents. With a wingspan of up to 16 inches, red-winged blackbirds are very strong flyers and can attain speeds of up to 30 miles per hour. When foraging, this breed will often travel in large flocks up to 50 miles away from their home site in search of food every day. While the average red-winged blackbird typically lives to the age of two, the oldest recorded red-winged blackbird lived to be nearly 16 years old. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. And now I'd like to introduce Dave Gavatsky. Dave worked with the U.S. Forest Service for over 30 years. During those years, he worked as a forester, silviculturist, and forest fire manager, devoting his efforts to protecting the White Mountain National Forest. Dave is co-author of the book, Forest for the People, a book detailing the history of the extraordinary efforts involved in creating the national forest system in the United States. He also served as technical advisor for the highly acclaimed documentary film, The People's Forest, a history of the White Mountain National Forest. Now retired, Dave volunteers his time helping with the New Hampshire Big Tree Program, as well as the Speaking for Wildlife Program. Dave recently completed a goal to visit all 175 national forests and grasslands in 41 states. Dave, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks, Catherine, for inviting me uh, to talk about old growth forests. Yes, I'm very curious to learn about old growth forests, and I'm sure my listeners are too. Could you start out maybe with a definition or explain what exactly an old growth forest is? Sure. Old growth forests are essentially old and complex and rare. In New Hampshire, we have less than one half or 1% of our forests that are considered to be old or old growth. Now, typically, we think of forests that are 150 years to 200 years average age as being old growth. Usually undisturbed, no previous logging or impacts by humans, such as road construction, farms. And so typically 150 years for northern hardwoods, 200 years for hemlock forest is an old growth forest. They're increasingly rare because, uh, you know, they are susceptible to development, to logging and that because the trees are often quite large and highly desirable for harvesting. But some places are so rocky, so steep, and along rivers and, and so forth where, where logging can occur. And those tend to be the areas that have uh, remained in, in what we call old growth forest. There's a number of other names for old growth forests. You know, we call them ancient forest, virgin forest, original forest, primeval, so many other, other terms. And, and for some people, they, they actually call them deadwood or decadent forest or messy forest or things like that. So there are some pejorative names that sometimes people use. But once people understand the value and beauty 
of an old growth forest, they, they won't consider those forests to be messy or uh, unsightly or, or, or full of dead trees because dead trees really have a lot of life and a lot of life for birds and, and other types of wildlife. Typically our trees don't get to be that old. You know, we do have some trees that are 700 years old in New Hampshire, but if you go out to the White Mountains of California in the Inyo National Forest, there's a bristlecone pine forest. And there are trees there where 2000 year old trees on these bristlecone pines are considered to be, you know, juniors. They're not, they're not the senior trees that get up to be over 4,000 years of age. So really depends on the part of the country and the type of forest that you're you're working with. But but around here, because you know, we have had forest fires, we've had wind disturbances and that, you know, forests that that typically are uh, 150 years old, that's a pretty old forest. So let's say someone's walking, they're hiking through the woods. How would they know they've come upon an old growth forest? What are the characteristics? Well, some of the characteristics are trees of a large diameter. And I'm talking trees that are not just 20 inches in diameter, but 30 and 40 inch diameter trees. When you see a tree that large with, with such a huge girth around it, you know, it's a pretty good indicator. And you can see tall trees. You know, some of our trees here in New Hampshire can be 140 feet tall or more. And that takes a long time for those trees to get to be that old. Some of the other characteristics, you don't see any stumps, you don't see any roads, you don't see fences, and you don't see a lot of uh, what we call stump sprouts, where there's multiple stems coming from the base of the tree. You'll often see things that are called tip-up mounds. It's where a tree blew down in a windstorm and it, it creates a mound. Sometimes those are called pillow and cradle things. And so the soil builds up and then there's this little cradle or pit where it, it looks different. So you get that topography that is so unusual, so uneven. In places that have had farms, for instance, the ground is fairly uniform. There's not a lot of rocks present and and you can typically tell that yes, this has been pasture land or this has been farmland. Now, some of the other characteristics, you'll see a lot of standing dead trees. And these are what we call snags. Again, snag is maybe a term that uh, I don't like to use because we often use the term snag, that we've snagged something and and that's considered in a bad sense. And so I like to call them wildlife apartments <laughs> or, or, you know, just dead trees. And, and we do call them snags, and, and, but there is a lot of life in those dead trees. So you'll see a lot of these tall snags or stubs of trees. You'll see a lot of trees that are lying on the ground, rotting away and returning the nutrients into the soil. You'll even see other trees growing on these logs. And these are essentially called nurse logs. And so you could potentially have a whole line of young trees growing on that. You'll see canopy gaps, areas where a tree or maybe two or three have blown down. And then you'll see a lot of young trees. And some people, they go into these forests and they say, wow, there's a lot of dead wood in here and dead trees. We need to come in and clean it up. And in reality, this is the habitat that you have in these old growth forests where there's a lot of down trees, down woody material. And, and these logs are great places for salamanders. These tip up mounds are great places for winter wrens. And you've got these cavities in the standing dead trees that are 
wonderful for things like flying squirrels and birds and other species like that. Many of the old growth forests that we have here have many species. You might have 12 or more species. Some of our old growth forests, particularly in the eastern hemlock ones, were, you know, you'll they could live up to 400 to 500 years of age. It's going to be mostly eastern hemlock and eastern white pine. So there's there's less diversity in there. And because the crown is so thick quite often in these hemlock forests, you don't have much of an understory. But in most old growth forests, and, and particularly here in the White Mountains, we, we see a lot of differences in the canopies. You have these shrubby layer and then you have a middle layer and then a higher layer. And then often you'll have what we call a super canopy layer. So multiple canopies of forest, a diversity of uh, ages, but many trees are large and old. Right. So, you know, if, if someone were walking along in the forest and they came upon an old growth area, it would look pretty chaotic, right? A lot of down trees, with live it, it, trees. It potentially could. And, and as long as you have those, you know, those other things with lots of woody debris down, lots of standing dead trees, but lots of big trees that look really old. Some of them may have all kinds of lichens and mosses growing on them. That could be a pretty good clue that you are in an old forest or an old growth forest. How do we use those terms interchangeably because, uh, you know, we have a lot of forests now that are reaching 150 years of age. And a lot of the logging that was done in, in New Hampshire in the 1870s through 1920s, you know, those forests have grown back and they haven't been harvested. So, so there's some great potential there for those forests to come back and to be managed in the future for old growth habitat. Hemlock and eastern white pine. Eastern white pine can can easily live to be 300 years of age. Hemlock up to 555, I think, is the oldest one that we've ever recorded. Those species and red spruce that we have, we have a lot of red spruce in the White Mountains, and that that will you know be up to 400 years of age, sometimes a little bit more. So those are old trees. Northern white cedar. This is an interesting case. Uh, I'll digress a little bit and go to Ontario in the Niagara Escarpment. And you look at Toronto and and some of these other cities in Ontario, you wouldn't think there's many old trees up there. But uh, a lichenologist was doing a study of the trees and, and he wanted to get some core samples of some of these northern white cedar. He came back with, I think it was 400 years of age, and he he almost fell over on the floor. He couldn't believe it was that old. To make a long story short, there's an interesting book on it called The Last Stand. And they came up with northern white cedar that were 1,600 years old that were growing on this cliff. They'd never been logged, and they were just there. So it's just an amazing find. So you wouldn't expect to have, you know, these really, really old trees, but northern white cedar can can live for a long time. Even here in New Hampshire, we have some really old cedars. Now, for hardwood trees, we, we have sugar maple and yellow birch. Those trees in particular can live in the 300-year-old range, and, and I've seen many of them on my hikes that are that old. Now, tell me, what are the benefits of an old-growth forest? Well, the first thing is diversity. And, you know, one of the big roles in ecology is you want to have a lot of diversity because that builds strength. And having these old forests, you know, they provide habitat for many species of wildlife, such as our flying squirrels and various 
other rodents, animals like the American marten love these hollow trees. Even black bears will go in these hollow trees and live. And birds, certain species of birds, our pileated woodpecker, our winter wrens love these tip-up mounds. Blackburnian warblers uh, love to be in the crowns of these trees. And they have an aesthetic value when you're walking and it's like being in a cathedral, these towering trees and you're walking through. So that's a really good thing, I think, for own personal mental health. There's a spiritual value that people see in, in these old forests. And to, you know, our indigenous, our native peoples, you know, they, they revere these areas because that's where they found sources of food and sources of medicine and, and other materials. One of the things that we talk about today is that we need to cool the planet down. The planet's getting to be too hot. And old growth forests tend to store a lot of carbon. So carbon storage, we need to take the carbon out of the atmosphere. So there's, there's carbon storage. There's another term we use sometimes called carbon sequestration. And without getting into the details, sequestration is just the rate at which carbon is stored. But in old growth forests, we can really store a lot of it. And so we're probably better off keeping a lot of our trees as they get bigger, they store a lot of carbon. You know, we're talking about planting a trillion trees and we may even need more because a lot of them are burning up out west because our planet's getting to be too hot. You know, planting trees is important. These young trees, they can, you know, once they reach a certain age, they start to really to sequester the carbon. But the forest that we have, we need to let them grow older and bigger so that we can have more carbon that's stored in there. So you go into these forests that are old growth forests and they tend to be a lot moister, a lot cooler. They provide habitat, for instance, along our streams for our Eastern brook trout. And so there's so many reasons that we wanna really keep these old growth forests. And, and one of the big ones, of course, today is cooling the planet down. And these old growth forests support several different types of habitats like fungi, correct? Oh yes, and uh, I mean, there's there's lichenologists and bryologists that that study mosses, and some of these trees have certain kinds of lichens. There's a kind of old man's beard that's called uh, Osnia species, and in these long strands take a long, long time. And many of the lichen species require really good clean air to survive. And, and you can find these lichens and mosses and liverworts and other plants in these old growth forests. So lots of diversity in there. Now tell me, what is the Old Growth Forest Network? The Old Growth Forest Network is an organization that oh, was founded a couple dozen years ago. And the desire is to, to have an old growth forest or an ancient forest in every county in the United States, if at all possible. And what this nonprofit group does is to encourage people to find old growth forests, to designate them, and to protect them in perpetuity. And typically, these are forests that have a walking trail through them. They're scattered all over the country. We don't have any yet in New Hampshire, although, you know, we have maybe three dozen really good candidates for being part of this network. So tell me now, how does New Hampshire measure up to the other New England states, like, say, Massachusetts and Maine, in terms of percentage of old growth forests? 
Well, those are three good states to look at. Massachusetts, we'll start with that first. Massachusetts actually is fortunate. They have a, an individual by the name of Bob Leverett, who has been studying old growth forest for oh, since the 1990s, and he's an expert on it. And in the Berkshires, there's a lot of really good old growth forest. And one of them is the Mohawk Trails State Forest in the Western Berkshires. There's also some old growth forest on uh, Mount Greylock, and there's a number of others that are you know, scattered around, particularly in the Western part of the state, but there's, there's some others on Mount Wachusett and that. I don't know the exact percentage. My guess is that it's certainly under 1%. I know the state would like to, and many people in the state would like to you know, increase that number. Maine has some fairly large stands of uh, old growth, particularly pine forest in the northern part of the state. But a lot of Maine has been you know, heavily cut over, but uh, they have a lot of uh, potential old growth forest that are there. And then some of the existing ones, one of them, and I'm trying to think of the name of it right off, I think it's the Big Reed Forest. It's, it's one of the largest in New England and some you know really big white pines. Uh, here in New Hampshire, we probably have an old growth forest stand, you know, a smaller grouping of trees in virtually every county in, in the state. We have 10 counties. Of course, Coas County and Grafton County and Carroll County, because of that, uh, you know, we have so much of the national forest, so many state parks and state forests, and so many areas that are somewhat inaccessible to logging in the old days that we, we typically have more and larger ones. One of them is in Crawford Notch, and it's in the White Mountain National Forest. It's called the Nancy Brook Research Natural Area, and, and that's about 1,500 acres of old growth forest. Much of it is uh, red spruce because it's up at a higher elevation. And in Randolph, in Coas County, we have a smaller one, a 36-acre old growth forest that's called the Snyderbrook Scenic Area. And you can park on Route 2 at a parking area called Appalachia. And it's just a quarter mile walk in before you get into this incredible stand of old growth forest that was protected in 1896 by members of the Appalachian Mountain Club. It's a small area, but it's a Again, one of those remnants or relics of what the forest used to look like. And in Grafton County, um, you have Franconia Notch State Park, and, and that has uh, uh, what they call an old forest. And, and quite a bit of Franconia Notch, what we have today as a state park, wasn't logged because of the profile house. And, you know, they wanted to protect their views and, and that. So you can start at the Lafayette Place campground. And if you can find a parking spot at the start of the Lonesome Lake Trail, you can walk or ride your bicycle down the bicycle path to a place called the Basin. And along that way, you're going to be walking or riding a bicycle in an old growth forest. And, and the state of New Hampshire, the Natural Heritage Bureau, has a wonderful three-page brochure that describes the Franconia Notch Old Forest. So you can get that online by looking it up under New Hampshire Natural Heritage. And then there's other places throughout the state. In Chesterfield, which is in the southwestern part of the state, you have uh, Chesterfield Gorge, which is, uh, again, a state-owned area. And that's not a large area. Again, it's one of those remnants, but it's a beautiful hemlock and white pine forest trees, 200 years of age, and not far from the road, beautiful trail going through it. 
You have the Pesca State Park, which, which has some old growth stands in it. And then you get into the southeastern part of the state and you have Pawtuckaway State Park, and there's some really old trees there. There's some, there's some eastern red cedar with type of juniper that exceeds 500 years of age. And, and again, a good part of it is because some of these areas were just so difficult to get to, to log, and, and they were left alone. And that's what I try to encourage people. I, I, you know, I, I work with landowners. I'm retired from U.S. Forest Service, and and today I, I do a lot of volunteer work. And and you know, they ask me about it, and you know, what would you do? And and as I tell them, you know, in the days I worked, that ninety percent of the problems that we had in, in, in logging the forest came from, you know, 10% of the area. And it would be so much better not to log those areas that are maybe too steep, too rocky, you know, leave those areas set aside and, and, and try to have a goal of 10% of your, your land to be managed in, in old growth forest. And even one of our guiding publications is called Good Forestry in the Granite State. There's a, there's a chapter just on having these old growth areas. It's, it's worth reading. So that's what I encourage. You know, not everybody can do it. You know, some people, you know, need the money and they're going to cut whatever they can. But we're fortunate that we have government agencies such as the U.S. Forest Service and the uh, state of New Hampshire. They do protect these areas as uh, natural areas. And we have other organizations like the Nature Conservancy, the Society for Protection of New Hampshire Forest and, and New Hampshire Audubon and local land trusts that are doing the same thing. And, and they're preserving these areas for future generations. And there's even money to be made. If you're a landowner, you can actually get carbon credits. It's a little complicated, but uh, the idea is that if you were otherwise going to be logging your forest off and you decide not to log it, there are companies that will pay you money to not harvest the trees and to preserve them so that they can, they can store carbon in the future. Let's say someone has found an old growth forest in their town and they want to preserve it. Like what would be their first step? What would they do to uh, get help? Well, I always encourage people, the first step is to go to their county forester. And that's a part of the University of New Hampshire extension. Every county has one and, and they generally have a forester that would be you know, certainly interested in, in hearing about uh, what they have, who can then uh, potentially take a look at it and provide some advice on what to do next. You know, they're familiar with good forestry in the Granite State, and they can work with the landowner and on the wishes that the landowner wants to have. There's actually a land trust. I think it's called the Wilderness Land Trust, and they actually have will do conservation easements, these forever wild clauses, and, and they're based in Vermont. So if somebody wants to do that and they want to put it in a conservation easement in perpetuity, that would be another option. You can also contact our forest network. And I'm a county coordinator for Coas and Grafton and, and uh, Carroll County. And we have others that are county coordinators for other counties. And so by looking at the county coordinators in, in our network, you can contact us. Our, our email addresses are there and uh, we'll go out and take a look with you on that. That is great. So now there was just an op-ed in the New York Times this morning, and it was called Trees Save Lives in Heat Waves. So why aren't we saving trees? Do you have any comment on that? 
<laughs> well, I, I think that people love trees. And in general, you know, we're trying to save our trees. There's a, I haven't read the story yet, but I will. I, I know that the American Forest Organization has just put out a tree equity index. And what that does, uh, it takes a look at about 350 urban areas, including Manchester, New Hampshire, and I think Nashua might be in there, maybe Concord. And it takes a look at individual neighborhoods and you can click on the neighborhood and to see what the density of trees is. You know, we're the second most heavily forested state in the country. Maine is first with 83%. We're 79%. I know some people measure the amount of forest that we have differently, but back to this tree equity thing, you can see who has the most trees, 60% forest cover and, and so forth. And quite often, it's the uh, underserved, it's the poorer sections of communities, industrial areas that don't have it. Those are the areas that are going to be 10 degrees, 15 degrees hotter than some of these wealthier communities. And so that gives us, as uh, if we're a planner, an urban planner in particular, you know, we can focus on those areas and we'll say, wow, those neighborhoods, for one reason or another, do not have that many trees. And maybe we should be putting our effort into planting trees, having parks in these areas so the people that are there that are underserved can have a similar amount of forest. And, and this tree equity index, and if you look up tree equity index under American forest, it's a great way to look a different way on how communities were treated in, in the past and that we can fix that. So it's a good index. So we are we are planting trees, you know, but we've we've got problems, you know, because the planet is warming. You take a look out west in places like Arizona and California, our forests are burning so hot, so fast, so often that we're converting forests to, to woodlands, which is a lesser density of trees, or into grasslands or shrublands. And so you have this repetitive burning. And so you don't have the cooling effect. And so you start to develop this runaway effect that we're losing our forest. And we need trees because they basically provide oxygen, the oxygen that we breathe. And you don't want to be losing any of these pieces of the puzzle. Here in the in the Northeast, or New Hampshire in particular, you know, we have some insect problems and disease problems. And one of them is the emerald ash borer. And this was a species that was brought in from outside the country. And now it's killing off our ash trees. You know, there's we have some hope, biological controls and, and that, some lingering ash. We have the hemlock woolly adelgid, which is a, an adelgid is like an aphid. And that's really hitting a lot of our eastern hemlock stands and in the southern part of New Hampshire. In the northern part, we have a, another adelgid called the balsam woolly adelgid. It's killing our balsam fir forest that we have up here in, in northern New Hampshire. So, so these insects have the potential to expand because we aren't getting these cold winters that we need to, to keep the populations of insects down. And so, you know, we're quite worried about them because some of our old growth forests are Eastern hemlock. And if we lose all the hemlock trees, it's not going to be good. And there's other threats out there. We don't have the Asian longhorn beetle, but that certainly could affect our maple trees, which are so important for our economy, whether it's maple sugaring or 
you know, the fall foliage tours and, and, and that. We just need to protect our forests and they're under siege. You know, we have viruses like COVID and, and other things. You know, our forests are, are suffering from some of these same attacks that are underway there. So we need to be more concerned about that and we need to find a way to minimize the warming that's occurring on the planet so that we have some a, a chance to be able to create a better survival strategy for us as a species. Right, exactly. So let's say someone wanted to get involved with tree planting and joining a group to do that. Can you recommend any groups that are planting trees in areas? Oh, there's quite a few. Again, I would look up University of New Hampshire Extension. And one of the organizations they have is called, uh, interesting name, Nature Groupie. And if you look up Nature Groupie, it's primarily New Hampshire, but they also cover Massachusetts and Maine and, and Vermont. And they they have a calendar of events, you know, on a monthly basis. So they often will have tree planting and, and that. So you can get on their, their mailing list and they will let you know what's happening. And of course, Arbor Day, you know, that's always worth celebrating. There's a, a Arbor Day Foundation. And we have a state forest nursery that's below Concord. And they can sell you trees. You can buy, a, you know, a zingle tree for a dollar. I mean, these are small little seedlings. But if you're going to be planting a lot, maybe you want to get 100 trees and for maybe 60 or $70. And then they give you instructions on how to plant them. And again, your county forester will be able to help you too. And many of the counties under the extension groups have 4-H programs, and that would be one way to look at it. So, and many of us who are interested in wildlife, you know, we want to plant wildlife species, you know, whether it's crab apple trees or butternut or something, you know, we, we want to have for color, diversity, and for oxygen production <laughs> and that. So, Lots of opportunities out there, and and so I would I would start with uh, with extension, right? And let's say I want I wanted to plant a few trees in my yard. What species would you suggest, or or what combination of species? Well, again, it depends on on what your objective is, and if if you're if you're trying to attract birds, for instance, I would I would say you know crab apples, mountain ash. I would look at uh, some of the viburnums, the high bush cranberry, for instance. In the southern part of the state, I'd be looking at buying grapevines because there's a number of birds that just love grapes. They love to take that bark, shredded bark, and they use to make nests out of that. So if you're looking for vines, that's something to look at. So there's probably three dozen choices that you would have. And, and there's um, commercial nurseries, too. And if, if you don't want to wait several years for these trees to get larger, you know, you go to your landscaper and try to get a native shrub or native tree. Some trees are no longer allowed to be sold. The Norway maple, for instance, which uh, has that milky sap if you break a leaf off, you know, those tend to be very, very invasive. And our native species are just not adapted to use any of the food, whether it's the seeds or the nuts or the fruit of, of these various invasive species. So that's something we need to look at too, is controlling invasive species. And it's a big picture out there of what we need to do to tend the forest. 
I'm very hopeful that in the infrastructure bill that uh, Congress has been tossing around that we're going to have a what's called a climate conservation corps. There's a number of uh, senators from around the country, bipartisan, and reps that are proposing these new CCC programs. They call it the Climate Conservation Corps. But the idea is to put, you know, 18 to 30 year olds to work on projects like this reforestation, fighting erosion, working on our natural habitat. And so that's that's something I'm very hopeful because I could easily see a couple hundred thousand or even a million young people working on the outdoors to deal with this climate change and, and you know, getting a decent wage, maybe paying off some of their college uh, tuition loans as a result of this, but they're going to become the leaders in the future. And we're, we need to pass that torch on to, to the next groups so that they can, they can deal with the uh, struggles that we face today. I mean, we've, we faced a lot of struggles a hundred years ago and we surmounted them. So I'm, I'm optimistic that uh, with the uh, next generation, they can alleviate the problems that we have today. That is great. That's very hopeful. When you're a forester, you know, you're, you're looking at a, a time frame of 150 years. And so you just naturally develop this optimism, even though, you know, there's a threat of forest fires and insects, disease, windstorm, and other factors like that. So you, you, you just develop this tendency to to believe in the future and try to manage these things to mitigate the potential effects. And and, uh, it's different than, you know, having a garden where, you know, you're going from, you know, spring to fall and and hope that you're not going to have problems. Here, it's a longer term. So you tend to be, you have to be optimistic. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing that kind of work. Yeah. Right. So as we wrap up, any more thoughts you'd like to add before we close? I think that it is so important for people to get out and enjoy nature. And one of the most important mental health programs that I think that our country could do, whether it's a you know federal or a state or a local agency, is to provide more opportunities for people to take a walk in the woods. Because I think nature is very soothing and can calm people down. We just need more of it. And we saw it in the last year, you know, dealing with COVID-19 that People spent a lot of time in the outdoors. It was healthy, it was safer, and it helped them in their coping. So anytime I think that we can encourage people to spend more time outdoors is going to be a healthy thing. And, And we need to protect more land and we need to have it be made available for, for people to, to enjoy and to cherish and to protect. Great. Well, Dave, I want to thank you for joining us today. Well, I want to thank you for inviting me to talk about one of my favorite topics of protecting old growth forest. I'd like to thank Dave Kowalski for joining us today. You can find his book, Forest for the People, on Amazon.com and the Barnes & Noble website. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. 
Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Thank you.